Hello and welcome to the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk with experts, explore the field of nutritional sciences, and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with Canadian doctors, dietitians, athletes, climate experts, and more to break down the evidence behind a whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps that you can take in your effort to shift toward a healthier lifestyle. Today I talk with Paulina Arujo. She's a registered dietitian and certified diabetes educator at Trillium Health Partners in Mississauga, Ontario. She started her career as a dietitian in the renal program at the Credit Valley Hospital, providing counseling to clients at various stages of kidney disease. Throughout her career, she has worked in both inpatient and outpatient settings, and also in private practice for a short period of time. For the last 10 years, Paulina has been working in the diabetes centers at Trillium Health Partners, counseling clients with type 1, type 2, and gestational diabetes. She has worked with both children and adults. Paulina has a passion for helping people improve their health through better nutrition and other lifestyle therapies, and uses a variety of dietary and behavioral approaches with her clients. She's a strong believer in the power of plants and plant-based nutrition to improve overall health and diabetes management. Paulina, thank you so much for joining us on the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Uh, thanks again also for uh, joining us for our conference this year. Let's get started. Uh, how did you grow up and what got you interested in nutrition? So, well, thank you very much, first of all, for having me. Um, re I really appreciate this opportunity to spread the plant-based message. Um, so, so for me, you know, I, I grew up in Mississauga, Ontario, which is a suburb of Toronto, as you know, and uh, I had a, you know, pretty comfortable upbringing in a middle class neighborhood. I had a, a, a Portuguese cultural influence in my life. My, my parents immigrated here from Portugal and I was raised by my parents and extended family members. And I would say even by society at large to believe that animal products are necessary in a human diet. So I was very much raised as a meat eater. I grew up with the belief that certain animal pro animals were specifically on this earth to feed us and clothe us. And I carried those beliefs with me until my late 20s to early 30s when my views on that started to shift and change. And the thing that got me interested in nutrition was um, it was actually completely by accident, not by accident, but I, I'd always had an, an interest in health and fitness and science and physiology. And these interests led me to complete a degree in kinesiology at McMaster University. And in my last year there, I took a nutrition course. And I remember just falling in love with the subject matter. I, I, I feel like a fire was lit in me in one of these lectures. And I was just so fascinated by how we metabolize food, how we extract energy from food, uh, how what we eat can affect blood levels of certain lipids and other things in our blood and affect the risk for illnesses and athletic performance and so I, I just loved it all. And I remember thinking I have got to do something related to this. I just didn't know what at the time. So after doing some research, I learned that there was such a thing as a dietitian. I learned that dietitians work in a variety of different practice settings in hospital-based systems for the food industry and private practice and a number of other areas. And I also learned that, that there was such a thing as a sports dietitian who counseled athletes and helped them to maximize their athletic performance. So, so that, that was actually my original intent when I first started studying to become a dietitian. 
and the plans eventually did change. Uh, after completing my kinesiology degree, I then completed a nutrition degree at Ryerson University and then a one-year internship at Mount Sinai. It was there that I got exposure to a variety of practice settings and different roles of the dietitian. And so, so that, that, and once I graduated, I started working first in the renal department at Credit Valley Hospital. And now for the last 10 years, I've been in the diabetes center, but it all started with that one nutrition course, one elective. So, so when did plant-based nutrition specifically come into play for you? Um, I guess I'm curious about some of the first studies or resources that you came across that really convinced you that a plant-based diet was beneficial. Yeah, so for me, it was definitely a very gradual shift. And I, th I think that a large part of that, it was that I grew up with that belief that animal products are necessary. It was a core belief that I have. And anytime you have a core belief like that, it usually takes quite a while and quite a lot of different things to chip away at it eventually. Um, but I can remember that one of the first resources that was pivotal was um, a position paper that was published in 2003, jointly by the American Dietetic Association and Dietitians of Canada. Um, so I graduated my, from, from my nutrition program in 2001, and honestly, I, I don't remember learning much, if at all, about vegetarian and vegan diets and how they're actually very healthy and, and should be promoted. It was de definitely not a core teaching. And so in 2003, this position paper was, position statement was released on vegetarian and vegan diets. And it stated that when well-planned, that vegetarian, including vegan diets are healthful, nutritionally adequate, appropriate for all stages of the life cycle, including infancy, childhood, pregnancy, lactation, and into later adulthood and that they in fact can provide health benefits in terms of preventing and treating certain chronic conditions and diseases. So it can help to prevent and treat hypertension, uh, dyslipidemia, overweight or obesity. It helps to reduce the risk of developing diabetes and certain types of cancers, uh, cardiovascular diseases, a number of chronic health conditions and the most common ones that we see here in North America. And it also outlined the nutrients of concern. So if people are avoiding animal products, it is important, I think, that they know where to get protein from and from plant-based sources and iron and calcium. So it highlighted plant-based sources of these important nutrients. And that was definitely a pivotal paper for me. And then another uh, important turning point for me was in, in the late 2000s, I believe, learning about how Canada's Food Guide was developed. So in previous iterations of Canada's Food Guide, you know, I was under the impression that what Canadians are being advised to eat is purely based on the latest evidence. And I learned that it was partly based on evidence, but also there was some industry influence. So you actually had people from the dairy industry directly involved in the development of the Food Guide and other areas of the food industry. And so that was something that made me kind of pause and think, okay, so we have people from the meat and dairy industry telling us what to eat. And then I also learned that this was true in the US with the USDA guidelines. Um, and so that made me question, you know, do we really need to have meat and alternatives? <laughs> does the meat need to be there or does the milk need to be there? Can it just be the alternatives? And then of course, you know, if, you, if 
I started to look around the world at dietary recommendations from various organizations, including the Canadian Cardiovascular Society, Diabetes Canada, the World Cancer Research Fund, Cancer Care Ontario, so a variety of, of organizations who put out published dietary recommendations for the treatment and prevention of, of chronic illnesses. And what I started to notice that these was that these were all plant-centered or plant-predominant to plant-exclusive recommendations. So typically Mediterranean-style diet, which is a very plant-heavy diet or vegan or pardon me, or vegetarian or vegan diets were being encouraged for the treatment of these conditions. So, I mean, there's, there's many more studies and bits of information, but these I think were for me really key. And then in terms of a fully plant-based diet, there's also Dr. David Jenkins trial using a portfolio diet to lower LDL cholesterol levels. And I know that you had Dr. David Jenkins on very recently. And, you know, he's contributed so much to our understanding of carbohydrate metabolism and the effect of diet on lipids. And in this trial, they use what he and his research team called a portfolio diet, which is a collection of foods that are known to lower LDL levels um, together into one dietary pattern. And so they included things like soy protein, viscous fibers from beans, peas, lentils, oats, barley, and certain kinds of vegetables like okra and eggplant, um, nuts and seeds, and plant starls. And what they found was that this combination of plant foods in the context of a very low saturated fat diet reduced LDL cholesterol levels to the same degree as a statin. So, you know, that was another pivotal study for me. Um, and it kind of highlights that when we're talking about food as medicine, the medicine is in the plants. That's kind of how I see it from the research that, that is out there. So you mentioned that you work with people with diabetes. Can you expand on that for us and maybe give us a sense of the role that diet plays in diabetes? And just uh, a note to our listeners, when we say diabetes, we're generally referring to diabetes type 2. So, I mean, nutrition plays a central role in general for diabetes management, even for type 1 diabetes. But as I think for type 2 diabetes, there are different aspects of it. But very basically, what we eat directly affects our blood sugar levels, insulin sensitivity, blood pressure, blood lipids, all of those things. You know, with, with type 2 diabetes, there's usually also people usually also have high blood pressure and high lipid levels. So nutrition interventions can not only help improve blood sugar levels and diabetes management, but the associated conditions, meaning uh, high blood pressure and high cholesterol levels. And this is especially important in diabetes because people with diabetes have a two to three-fold increase in the risk of developing cardiovascular disease compared to the general population. And what we eat also affects our body weight, which in turn can affect blood pressure, insulin sensitivity, and blood glucose levels. And it's well documented that nutrition interventions can are key in managing diabetes. On average, nutrition therapy can lower A1C, that's the three-month blood sugar average, by 1% to 2%, and sometimes more, depending on a person's baseline diet before they make changes. 
So I, I really try to impress upon my clients that food is medicine. I'm a believer in food as medicine, and so is exercise, and so is weight loss. Those are key therapies for anybody living with, type, with diabetes, especially with type 2 diabetes, because 80 to 90% of people living with type 2 diabetes are overweight or obese, and weight loss is one of the most helpful things in managing blood sugar levels, even minor weight loss of 5 to 10% of initial body weight can significantly improve insulin sensitivity, blood glucose levels, blood pressure, and can help reduce the amount of medication that people need. So as a dietitian, you focus a lot on energy density. Your talk that uh, you gave during our conference this year was, was focused on energy density. Can you tell our listeners what energy density is and how it relates to or might differ from nutrient density? Yes. So, so very simply put, energy density is basically the number of calories per weight of a food. It's usually expressed as calories per gram in the literature, but many people express it as calories per pound. And in fact, for me, it, it definitely is, makes a bit more sense to me when I envision a pound. I can envision a pound of apples or carrots or cucumbers more easily than I can envision a gram of an apple or a gram of a carrot. And nutrient density, on the other hand, does not relate to the calories of a food, but more the nutrients in a food. So both the micro and the macronutrients, the micronutrients being things like vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytochemicals, and the macronutrients being things like water content, fiber, protein, carbs, fat, et cetera. And energy density and nutrient density are typically inversely related. So the foods that are high, lowest in energy density, like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, peas, lentils, et cetera, are very rich in nutrients. So particularly micronutrients, but they're also rich in fiber. They have a high water content and they have some carbohydrates and some protein as well and very little fat. So that's how those two things are related. And conversely, foods that have a high calorie density, so foods typically very processed types of foods and or very high fat foods. So oils, butter, margarine, processed snack foods like cookies, pastries, ice cream, chips, uh, even things like low-fat crackers and baked chips, because their water and their fiber content typically is very low, and they've been highly processed, and a lot of the micronutrients have been stripped away. They have a, a low nutrient density, but a high calorie density, meaning they have more calories per bite compared to foods that have a low calorie or energy density. So, so then what role does energy density play in weight loss? Um, what are some of the things that you go over with some of your, your clients when you're discussing this specifically? So in terms of weight loss, um, I know that there's confusion out in, on the internet and on social media of whether or not calories even matter. You know, there's a school of thought and a theory that it's really the carbohydrates and insulin that are key in helping to manage obesity. But if you look through the literature, you will see very clearly that it's calories, that if in order for a person to lose weight, they need to create a calorie deficit. And that can be accomplished in a number of ways. People can do that by avoiding or limiting carbohydrates or limiting fat, or just eating less junk food than they were eating before. So the calories, lowering calorie intake is extremely important. 
And if we turn our attention away from counting calories or, or the carbohydrate or the fat grams, and we focus it more on the energy density, so trying to eat more of the foods that have fewer calories per bite, it's a way that allows us to eat satisfying portions of relatively low calorie foods. So instead of restricting portions, people typically either will eat the same amount of food as before, or sometimes even larger volumes of food. And in North America, we typically eat similar amounts of food per day. Most people eat on average three to five pounds of food per day. And the, the researchers into the area of obesity, uh, pardon me, of energy density have discovered some very interesting things around our behavior around food. So in feeding studies where people are grouped into, so, so if they're, they're told to eat to satiety and they're advised to either choose from foods that are low in calorie density or moderate or high, when researchers compare the amount of food that each group eats, what they find is that regardless of the energy density, people eat a certain, the same weight or the same volume of food, which is really interesting. So it seems that for us to feel physiologically full, that it's the volume of the food in our diet that is key. There's some evidence that maybe we eat to a certain protein level to get a certain amount of protein in our diet, but there's also a lot of evidence that we, I, I think what drives our, our satiety is that we need to just eat a certain weight of food. And we can reduce portions, we can eat less food, cut calories, and people certainly will lose weight by doing that. But that often leaves people feeling hungry and the hunger can trigger cravings. And those two things, hunger and cravings, are the things that usually lead people to abandon their weight loss efforts. So for anyone who's trying to manage weight or help people to lose weight, it is absolutely critical that hunger and cravings are managed. And when we focus on energy density, you can eat large volumes of food so that you're actually feeling full and not deprived. And I think that that is the biggest way, while at the same time eating fewer calories without having to think much about it. So I think that that is the principal way that energy density can be helpful in weight loss. So I, I just also want to make a note that energy density is not a diet. It's really more a set of principles that can guide food choices. And it can be applied in a number of different ways. So you can apply it in a low-fat omnivorous way, a low-fat vegan way, vegetarian way, low-carb. But from what I've seen in the literature so far, and I think we still need to learn a lot more about this, but what I've seen so far is that it seems to be the most effective when it's applied in a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based way um, compared to other, other approaches. And I like how you say that it's a principle to think about rather than a diet, because people can become very, you know, dogmatic if they're following a specific diet. So if it's just yes. a principle to add on to an eating pattern, then I feel like it might be uh, easier for people to grasp, maybe. Yes, um, definitely. I also think it was very interesting when you were talking about uh, people eating uh, the same amount of weight, uh, no matter what diet they were eating. I feel like I am... Uh, uh, guilty of that. Uh, <laughs> um, so I also wanted to it, ask. It's your nature though, Clint. Yeah. It's your nature that we, we need to eat a certain volume. Otherwise we're just not full. Yeah. I, that's exactly how I feel. Like I wanted to ask too. So, so going back to the energy density and weight loss, you mentioned some, some researchers and some studies, but I was curious if you have any particular studies that you wanted to highlight. 
Yes, yeah, so, so there are several smaller feeding studies conducted that have been published by Barbara Rolls. She's really been a pioneer in this area of research. She and a number of other researchers have done a lot of feeding studies into this area, and I can link a really good review paper uh, written by Barbara Rolls on this topic. But um, so some of those studies were, like I mentioned, where, where people are grouped and advised to either choose foods to satiety from either low moderate or high energy dense foods and and a lot of her research shows that that it is the volume of the food the stretch that the volume of a certain amount of food provides to our stomach that helps with satiety so so we have stretch receptors on the outside of our stomach lining that are activated as our stomach fills up with food and they send signals to our brain to tell us that we're full and so that is one very important aspect of how energy density is helpful and then, and then it more specifically comparing, um, you know, a more recent metabolic ward study that was published this year by Kevin Hall and his team looking at ad libitum intake of a low fat whole food plant based or vegan diet compared to an animal based ketogenic diet. So this, this one study was really fascinating. And I particularly really liked the approach of trying to, to test out not necessarily low carb, low fat, but more these dietary patterns. And I feel like the nutrition world has become very polarized and people are fall into one camp and they just push that mantra of that camp at all costs. And one of the things that are touted by those who promote a ketogenic diet is the satiating effects of a ketogenic diet, that people are just naturally fuller and they'll eat fewer less food, and that's what helps with weight loss. And I think that is true to some degree. Uh, but this diet actually, this study actually compared how much people eat when they're eating to satiety, if they're choosing foods from a, a vegan diet versus an, a keto diet. So, so this was a random, randomized control trial. People were randomly assigned to one of these two diets, and then they followed the diet for two weeks and crossed over and followed the opposite diet. And the other thing that I liked about this study was that it wasn't a junk food version of one dietary pattern versus a healthy version of another. It was whole food versions, optimal versions of both of these diets with similar amounts of non-starchy vegetables. And the researchers wanted to look at whether or not people ate more, uh, you know, how much did people eat on these diets, how these diets affected insulin levels in the body, body weight and body composition, hunger levels, fullness, satisfaction, and a variety of other, of other parameters. So with the carb insulin model of obesity, this is a, a theory that proposes that it's not calories that really matter, it's carbs that matter when it comes to weight loss. That when we eat carbohydrate rich foods, they, that drives up insulin levels and the high insulin levels keep fat within our cells and prevent fat loss. And so in order for people to lose fat, it's necessary to reduce insulin levels, that you cannot have fat loss without reducing insulin levels. So what the researchers found was in fact that those eating the vegan diet on average ate between 550 to 700 calories less per day compared to the ketogenic diet. And it wasn't because they didn't like the food, the, they rated the food as just as tasty, just as familiar and satisfying, and they were just as full and, and 
um, as when they were eating the, the animal-based ketogenic diet. And interestingly, those eating the keto diet lost more weight, actual just body weight, the number on the scale. So at first glance, this study seems to lend support to the carb insulin model of obesity. But when the researchers looked at body composition changes, they found that that weight loss was entirely fat-free mass. It was mainly water weight and some muscle mass loss. So the water weight is from the diuresis that occurs when we deplete our glycogen stores. And then people also lost some muscle mass, which is not at all what you would like to see because it's important to preserve lean muscle, uh, lean, lean body weight to help uh, optimize our metabolism. And it was only when people were eating the low-fat vegan diet that they experienced significant fat loss. And, and I forgot to mention that the other difference between these two diets, uh, other than the varying levels of carbohydrate and fat content, was the energy density. The low-fat vegan diet had half the energy density of the ketogenic diet. That was a really interesting study highlighting the difference between the energy density when we're just eating to satiety. And also, again, shows that it's not insulin or carbs that affect our body weight per se, it's the calorie. If we can create a calorie deficit, we will lose fat. If a person is not losing fat, they are not creating a calorie deficit, even if they think they might be. And then, you know, two more recent studies that were actually community-based studies, not metabolic ward studies. I think these types of studies are re really useful in helping, helping us to understand the nuances of nutrition and how different dietary patterns affect us. But in a metabolic ward, people are not having to cook their own meals or navigate the stressors of life. So you want to see, does this also apply? Can, can you also apply these results in a real world setting? A really great study that was published in 2017 was the BROAD study. This was a community-based randomized control trial that used a whole food plant-based diet for treatment of obesity and to lower cholesterol levels. Participants were counseled to eat fruits, vegetables, beans, peas, lentils, and whole grains to satiety without any restriction on portions or certain calorie level. And at one year, the average weight loss was about 11, was 11 kilograms. So if you look again through the weight loss literature, you'll see that this is a, a very large amount of weight loss comparable to, compared to most studies. Most studies might find an average weight loss after a year of about three to five kilograms. And in this one, you have 11 kilograms. And this is the largest weight loss of any trial that does not intentionally limit energy intake or portions or mandate regular exercise. So that, that shows that, that this approach can work in a, a community-based setting. And then of course, there was also Dr. Barnard's recent study published earlier this year compare, comparing ad libitum intake of a low-fat vegan diet to a Mediterranean diet. Again, optimal versions, people were taught to follow optimal whole food versions of each of these diets. And this one was a, a randomized crossover trial where people were randomly assigned to either the low fat whole food vegan diet for 16 weeks or the whole food Mediterranean diet for 16 weeks. And a Mediterranean diet is a higher energy dense diet compared to a vegan diet 
because of the inclusion of an abundance of olive oil, which is the highest oils and fats have the highest energy density of all foods. And, um, and also because of the inclusion of some animal products, whereas the vegan diet obviously excludes animal products and oils. And um, so people followed one of these two diets for 16 weeks. And then there was a four week washout period where they returned to their usual diet and then a crossover to the opposite diet for 16 weeks. And it was only when people were following the vegan diet that there was significant weight loss. So on average, in each of the intervention phases of the study, people lost an average of 6.6 kilograms. There was also a significant drop in LDL levels only in the vegan group. And both groups had a drop in their blood pressure. And interestingly, more so on the Mediterranean diet, even though they didn't lose any weight. So, so they didn't gain weight, but they also, there was no weight loss or fat loss on the Mediterranean diet. So it sounds like there's, there's ample evidence that speak to energy density, but something that you mentioned in your answer just now is you mentioned real world stressors. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, you know, you mentioned a regular person working, you know, a nine to five job and going about their day. So it's great. You can present all of this evidence to them and you can, you can uh, be visual about it. H how does it work when you're in the room with them and you you're talking to your clients, do you get a lot of pushback because, you know, oftentimes people, they've lived their whole life not knowing this information and uh, food is tied to culture and all these other aspects. How, mm -hmm. how much, uh, is, is it an obstacle um, to overcome or, um, or do you find people actually get along with it? So interestingly, I do find that there is pushback when it comes to energy density. And I think you bring up to a really important point that there's also the behavioral side of, of making dietary changes. So, so we can teach people about the benefits of energy density and how to do it, but they still have to work on changing ingrained long-term habits that they've developed over many years. But when it actually comes to the concept of energy density, um, there are three main pushbacks, which really surprised me. So one is people think it's too simple. And that was one of the things that attracted me to it as a dietitian. Uh, when I learned about this, just, uh, you know, about five, five years ago, maybe four years ago uh, at, at a conference. And I felt very excited learning this information because of partly because it was simple. You're not, people don't have to count calories or carbs or weigh or portion out their food. Really, you just focus on teaching them about the foods that have fewer calories per bite. In my experience, most of the people that end up in my office asking for help with weight loss have already tried a multitude of dietary approaches and diets. They've tried Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig and low carb diets and keto diets and everything under the sun. And they've always had varying levels of success, but usually they've regained the weight. And the way they've always approached dieting, again, which I really discourage a dieting mindset, but the way they've approached weight loss is to count calories or macros or weigh or portion out their food. So when I tell them that they don't need to do any of that, that they just don't think it's going to work. That's one thing that, that people push back on. Second is, again, that it's not a restrictive plan. So typically people are used to restriction. Diets by nature are restrictive. You are restricting certain foods. You're eating smaller portions. You are um, usually looking down at a plate of food that has less food than what you're normally used to eating. 
And with when we focus on energy density, people either should be eating similar amounts of food as they were before, or many times they're actually eating larger amounts of food. So I think that people equate weight loss with smaller portions, not larger portions. And so I think that's another, another thing that, that makes them not convinced that it might work. And then a, a really big one for me is, is this cultural fear of carbohydrates that we have that I, that I notice. You know, most of the foods that are low in energy density are rich in carbohydrates. So the lowest energy dense foods are the non-starchy carbohydrates. Those are not high carb foods. But the other ones are things like fruit, starchy vegetables like sweet potato, potato, peas, squash, corn, beans, lentils, chickpeas, whole grains. So not the grains that most Canadians are used to eating, not bread, croissants, bagels, low-fat muffins that have a lot of calories per bite and are not as filling, but more so things like oats and barley and wheat berries and, and other grains like this. So when people think of these foods as carbs and they've heard the message and it's been ingrained in them that carbohydrates cause weight gain. So why are you telling me to eat more carbohydrates and not less in order for me to lose weight? So I often have to explain the concept multiple times and it's almost like I'm trying to deprogram this fear of carbohydrates. And, uh, and then the, the other thing, you know, as, as a, someone who works in a diabetes center is carbohydrate rich foods do affect blood sugar levels more than lower carbohydrate foods. So that's another area of pushback. And I just remind people that not all carbohydrates raise your blood sugar to the same degree or in the same way. So jelly beans and kidney beans are not the same thing at all. Jelly beans and chocolates and cookies are going to cause a much higher rise in your blood sugar compared to kidney beans or chickpeas or other legumes. Um, so I really just encourage people to choose low glycemic index carbohydrates to spread their carbohydrates out over the day so that they're not eating large portions at one time, which could cause a spike in their blood sugar levels. And to use what we call the plate model to help with you know, some sort of a portioning, meaning that people would fill half of their plate with non-starchy vegetables. So broccoli, peppers, tomato, cucumbers, greens, etc. So those really should be the stars of the plate. And then also to include a quarter of the plate as protein and a quarter of the plate as uh, carbohydrate rich food or starchy foods. And that, that is something that will help. And then if energy density principles help people to lose weight, the weight loss is something that is gonna help improve blood sugar levels, insulin sensitivity and carbohydrate tolerance. So the weight loss using energy density principles will actually help improve blood sugar management. So that's, I think that's one thing people will take away from this when you mention kidney beans are not jelly beans. When we're mm -hmm. talking about the carbohydrate debate, they're not the same and people need to realize that. Um, so that's, a, that's great. Uh, I also thought it was really interesting when you were talking about going against the grain, really, you're more or less telling people you can eat more food or as much food as you were eating so long as you're just focusing it on the nutrient dense foods rather than the, the high calorie foods. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess in a way you're telling, you're, you're telling them to go against the grain by eating whole grains. Um, yes. <laughs> which, is, which is a great way to think about it. Before I let you go, you, you went into this a little bit just now, but if someone is uh, listening and they, they really like your, your, 
your message of energy density, and they themselves are trying to lose some weight or maybe just get healthier. What are some common sense steps that you could give them to, to start their journey? So I guess number one would be don't fear nature's carbs. So I, I can't take credit for that jelly bean and kidney bean line. I have to give credit to da Dr. David Katz, who, who says that. Um, but I would also add to that that an apple is not the same as apple pie, right? That we need to be able to differentiate between good quality carbohydrates and, that are low in energy density and the poor quality carbohydrates that are high in energy density and designed to make us overeat that are much easier to overeat compared to nature's carbs. And um, in general, I would just encourage people to focus on eating more whole foods in general, regardless of the dietary pattern they wish to follow. So switching from a processed food diet to any whole food diet will help improve usually weight status and other parameters of health. Um, but more specifically, I really would encourage people to it include as many of the minimally processed whole plant foods as possible. So in particular, the non-starchy vegetables I mentioned, fruits, starchy vegetables. Again, just be careful of the processing. So uh, boiled potato with the skin is much more filling and satiating at a lower calorie level compared to French fries. So again, the, the, that, that's also an important consideration. Um, and also to include things like beans, peas, lentils, uh, and more whole grains and less of the processed types of grains. And then I would also really encourage people to, if they're eating animal-based sources of protein, which most Canadians are, to swap out at least sometimes those animal-based proteins for plant-based proteins, such as beans, peas, lentils, tofu, tempeh, adamame, or even low-fat veggie burgers or other meat alternatives, because all of these sources of protein provide a much lower energy density compared to even some of the animal-based sources that we think of as lean sources, like chicken breast without the skin, for example, has a higher energy density compared to, to beans or edamame or tofu. And then the plate model is another really useful concept for people. So try to fill half of your plate with non-starchy vegetables that you like. I think it's important we enjoy our food. So eat the ones that you like. A quarter of the plate as protein, preferably from plant-based sources, but at least if they're choosing animal-based sources to at least choose the leaner ones like whitefish, tuna, or poultry. And, and then I think it's also important for people to recognize that when they adopt this style of eating, that you're going to significantly be increasing fiber in your diet. So it's important to include, to drink more water and to gradually increase fiber to avoid bloating and other, uh, other GI side effects. And our body will adapt and the gut bacteria in our colon will adapt and uh, those GI side effects usually subside. And then one other thing that I would really encourage your listeners to do is to check out Jeff Novick's talk on YouTube. Um, his last name is N-O-V-I-C-K and he's got a fabulous talk, talk on energy density or calorie density. And what I like most about it is it's very visual. He really shows visually the abundance of food, the large portions of food that people can eat if they're focusing on this, uh, this concept of energy density. And I find that the visuals are really, really helpful for people and really impactful. 
Olina, it's been fantastic talking to you today. I, I learned a lot. I want to encourage people to, to check out our show notes. I'll link everything that you've mentioned uh, down below. But I, I also encourage everyone to check out, we'll, we'll link the talk that um, you did with us earlier this year. And you have a lot of visuals um, in your in your talk. You're really good at visualizing. Um, you mentioned the plate model, what a plate would look like um, when you're shifting to nutrient dense foods. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. It's been it's been great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. This podcast featured royalty free music from bensound.com. A very special thanks to our guests for speaking with us and sharing their insights. And of course, thank you for listening. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate the public and health professionals on the evidence-based benefits of plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website, www.plantbasedcanada.org, and stay up to date by following us on Instagram and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org and our Plant-Based Canada YouTube channel. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts.